0: And the point that we've reached thus far is that Nehemiah is, has been living in Susa, far away from Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is in ruins, but God has a plan, God has a, a, a vision to restore the city of God, restore the, the joy of the whole earth, as it's called in the Psalms. And Nehemiah then experienced God's hand upon him, God's favor upon him, opening up the the opportunity, opening up the way, providing the resources to be able to return to Jerusalem, go really to a ruined city, to ragtag residents, and begin a process of rebuilding God's city. That's kind of the point at which we got to last time. David, uh, David, no, that's the last part. Uh, Nehemiah, kind of at the right time in the right way, opened his heart to the people in Jerusalem and said, look, this is what God's laid on my heart. This is how he's dealt with me so far. Here's the story so far. Here's how he's provided. How Here's how his hand has been uh, uh, upon me. But it's a, it's bigger than that. And uh, will you join with me in rebuilding this city? And the people go, yes. And now we have the, uh, the fun of getting the detailed accounts of how that came about. And so it's my great privilege stroke fear to attempt to read chapter three smoothly. I will. I might take it slow in point, just to make sure I get some of the words out. Here we go. Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanar. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshullam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Barna, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshana gate was repaired by Joida, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Bezadiah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon, and Jadon of Merinoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates, Aziel, son of Hahiah. Uh, one of the goldsmiths repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of the Harst districts of Jerusalem, repaired the next section, adjoining this. Jediah, son of Haramoth, made repairs opposite his house, and Hattush, son of Hashbaneah, made repairs next to him. Malchajah, son of Harim and Hashub, son of Pahath-Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens Shalom, son of Halahesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem repaired the next section with the help of his daughters The valley gate was repaired by Hanun and the residents of Zenoa They rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place They also repaired 500 yards of the wall as far as the dung gate. The dung gate was repaired by Malkijar, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-Hakarem. He rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalon, son of Col-Hose, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam, by the king's garden, as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk. Ruler of half district of Bethzur made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool in the house of the heroes. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Rahim, son of Barney. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of half a district of Keilah, carried out repairs for his district. Next to him, the repairs were made by their countrymen under Binwi, son of Henadad, ruler of the other half district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezra, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zebai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance to the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Next to him, Meramoth son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired another section from the entrance of Eliashib's house to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs in front of their house. Next to them, Azariah, son of Messiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Next to him, Binwi, son of Henadad, repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle and the corner. And Palau, the son of Uzay, worked opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Pedadiah, son of Parush, and the temple servants, living on the hill of Ophel, made repairs up to the point opposite the water gate, toward the east and the projecting tower. Next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section, from the great projecting tower to the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priest made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Imma, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shakaniah, uh, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Malkajar, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants, opposite the inspection gates, and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. There we have it. <laughs> That's it. I'm afraid I've not prepared a message. I've just been practicing <laughs> <laughs> reading those names. Praise God that he leads us through expository preaching of a book in the Bible. We're going to have a good time in Nehemiah uh, chapter 3. We have, in effect, as we've read through that, we've taken a, a clock, an anti-clockwise tour around the city. And there are a variety of gates at different points in the city wall. And so that's kind of how the the passage is structured. You get these different gates and then different people making repairs all the way around it. And obviously, it's a massive list of names. It's not the only list of names in the Bible. And you kind of wonder, oh, can we just cut to the chase? Well, in a sense, this is the chase. Um, God, in his word, honors the names of people who put their hand to his kingdom. And so we might kind of think, oh, Eliashib, fantastic, Menotokoa, wonderful, Uzeel, or whoever. Well, what do we get from this? We get from this that God values the part that individual people make into his kingdom. Generations might pass, and we don't, people won't remember. I wonder what he looked like. I wonder what he had for breakfast. Um, I, I wonder you know, what his middle name was. You know, all of that gets forgotten, but the Bible, God's word, and in God's kingdom... People aren't forgotten who've played their parts in God's purposes on this earth. So I think we can give thanks to God that we get passages like this that remind us this is real. This is personal. God cares. He doesn't necessarily, um, record the name, for example, of the Pharaoh that opposed Moses, but he, he records the names of people who, whose faith is, is worth, uh, Giving profile and, uh, and thanks for. Obviously, it's a kind of passage that just can lead to lots of mystery. You end up wondering, well, okay, we get a description of, of who repaired this and who repaired that and who restored this and where did people come from and what were their names. But you can kind of think, well, well, how did they do this? This is an amazing feat of organization and concerted action. And we can be thinking, how, how did they do it? Um, we can kind of get into those practical questions, but really is it, I'm not quite sure how much that would help us. Uh, there's some in- other intriguing questions like, for example who lived at the house of the heroes? You kind of want to know. That would be a great place to say yeah, that's 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 my address <laughs> yeah, you can come you can come that's nah. <laughs> So it's full of intrigue, but, and if we ask ourselves the question, well, how did this happen? We, we can arrive at some interesting answers without speculating exactly as to how they did it. You kind of think, you know, if, if people looking back in generations were to kind of get an insight into city church life, they might ask, well, how did, how did they do it? And say, well, first of all, every head of a household would buy a Vauxhall Sephira <laughs> because I'm sure that the, um, the car park will probably indicate this. No vehicle is so uniquely qualified for family and kingdom life <laughs> as a Vauxhall Safira. You can fold the seats down. You can pack in a lot of rubble and clear stuff. You can take people to the wall and start rebuilding. Uh, maybe you might need to fit some chunkier tires. So we're not going to interrogate the text in that way, but we're going to look at what's the, what's the character of the people who are putting their hands to the work. What what are these people like? What are these people like? And therefore, what is God doing amongst us? What are we to be like? We're going to look at these different characteristics. I think firstly, what this passage demonstrates loud and clear is here's a group of people who are profoundly committed to... This vision that Nehemiah has spelt out. There are groups of people who have traveled far. So there are, you might have spotted them. There are a few groups of people who come from Jericho, from Zenoa, from Tekoa. In other words, these are people who don't live in Jerusalem or immediately surrounding Jerusalem. They have traveled in. It's like, no, we're, we're leaving our home. We're leaving our home situation. Um, for some of them, actually, they're also leaving businesses so it's intriguing to read of goldsmiths and uh, ordinary guys and perfume makers and priests and uh, rulers and residents, loads of different people, some of whom would have actually left behind a, a lucrative, bi- a, relatively speaking, a lucrative business in order to come and put their hands um, to the work here in, uh, in Jerusalem. Some people we discover... Uh, their, their commitment leads them to walk uh, to work on more than one section of the wall you 're forgiven if you didn 't spot that on the way through, but there are a couple of names that crop up uh, more than once. So we have for example Merrimoth in verse four He is the son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, and he repaired the next section um, there in the, uh, in the fish gate uh, which is the north of the city. Uh, Turn over. To verse 21, we find that he's at it again. Next to him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, clearly the same bloke, repaired another section from the entrance of Eliashib's house to the end of it. I think that would be near to the Fountain Gate, so near to the south and the southeastern corner of the city. So in other words, he's he's gone to one part, maybe with others there that are kind of particularly working with him, repaired one section, and they've gone to another part of the city city and they've repaired another section again another intriguing uh, comment we're told so many times that so and so repaired such and such a section but the guy called Barak gets a particular mention in verse 20 so next to him Barak son of Zabai or Zabai all you have to do really is say the name confidently and people will believe you know what you're talking about Barak, son of Zabbi, zealously repaired another section. Well, there's loads of people repairing sections. How did this guy get a mention as doing it particularly zealously? Uh, we don't know. We're left to wonder. But again, kind of special mention, special attention is brought to him. However he did it, it's no kind of slur on others and their effort. It's just kind of worth, it was worth noting. This guy did it zealously. Well profound commitment you might spot another phrase that pops up quite a number of times where it says over each section or over each uh, gate that the doors and the bolts and the bars were put in place can i just hear a hallelujah amen in the building i mean that is wonderful What well, it is what it's saying is that their commitment was such that they put the finishing touches to the work they rebuilt the gates. They cleared out the rubble. They re-established the walls, and they followed it all the way through to putting the gate, the, the actual doors, in place. But this could be a functioning city. This could be a secure, a secure place, a place where things uh, trade could happen, communi- community could happen, people could find security because. They so got hold of the vision, they took it all the way through to the finishing touches. Now, that is, I would say, actually miraculous. So this chapter is recording, I think, something that is a miracle. I think it's a miracle that this group of people gathered together in this way and put their heart and soul into this work. Why is that? Well, remembering the background. This is a people who were invaded, a nation, the majority of whom were killed. Many of those that survived were scattered uh, into the rest of the Babylonian Empire that became the Persian Empire. Uh, Others were just trying to eke out a living. This is not a prosperous time in the life of Jewish people, in the people of God. This is not an easy time. This is not a peaceful time. And actually, it's not not been an exciting time. There have been moments of restoration, but by and large, there have been years of rubble, like we were looking at last time, years of disappointment and years of hardship. And so... When Nehemiah opens his heart to these people, the fact that they replied saying, "Let us start rebuilding," and so they began this good work, that is a miracle. It's it's understandable. In any group, there'll be some who go, "Yeah, that sounds a great idea." There'll be some who's like, "Oh, maybe, maybe not," and there'll be others who're like, "No, there's just no chance that's happening. Forget it. We've we've already encountered enough change. We've already got too much to handle." Why are you dumping this extra extra load on us? Why are you giving us this extra vision? We're we're struggling with life as it is, and so you, you you're bound to get kind of people responding in those different ways, ordinarily speaking, and then people in the middle, kind of yet to hear, make up their minds, maybe hearing some kind of a positive take on it, but others just, just taking a negative take on it. So think of this if you know uh, how things have worked out previously when God was wanting to bring his people into the promised land in the first place Joshua uh, Moses sends uh, 12 spies um into the promised land and they come back with a favorable report of what it's like of what the land is like um but 10 of those spies are fearful and 2 of those spies have faith and which way do the people go the people opt no the people opt for We just can't see that God is in this. This is too hard. This is too tough. Things have been so difficult. We've been in slavery and we've been in wilderness. Do you really think we can go into this promised land and it will all just work out because God's with us? What's going on? So you've got all those mix of these. Well, well, this time, all the people reply, "Let us start rebuilding," and they began this good work. God was about something wonderful. And we see it, we see it here. We do see a small people, a a relatively small group, even despite the number of names I've just had to try and pronounce. A small nation. God's people are small. They're not significant in the world right now. They're not powerful. They don't look particularly impressive. There's nothing sophisticated about them, and they're not very numerous. But, I think they've heard something, and they've heard it with faith. You see, Nehemiah said this in responding to some of the opposition that was already coming their way. In chapter 2, verse 20, Nehemiah answers those opposing this plan, saying, the God of heaven will give us success. I think the people of the people hearing Nehemiah got hold of something. It's not the God of Nehemiah, this is the God of heaven. We're a people and we feel small. We don't feel very impressive. We look around and there's rubble, but the God of heaven... Is doing something new. The God of heaven has grabbed our attention. God of heaven is with us and he will give us success. And so people come to faith in that God. They come to faith in this vision because they're seeing something. They're seeing this is bigger than just Jerusalem, this is bigger than just our numbers, and this is bigger than this guy, Nehemiah, who's come from Susa, 800 miles away. This is about something that God is doing. And we've heard God on this, and therefore, we're going with faith. That, that kind of commitment, that miraculous commitment, actually flows from a place, not of just feeling, oh no, we've just. I guess we've got to try, haven't we? Let's, oh, let's just try and sh- sh- struggle on through. That's kind of, no, God's with us. Uh, that's where this profound commitment comes from, and uh, it's interesting, just what we heard earlier on when Rach was sharing about about dusty faith or truth that's familiar to us, but it's become faint or faded, and then that encouragement comes. But God's wanting almost just to blow on that dusty faith and reignite what we know to be true. That's what it's about. It's not just saying, first of all, come on, everybody, commit ourselves. It's saying, no, what's true of God? What's true of him? What is he doing? If it's true that he can raise the dead, if it's true that Jesus could go to the cross, be laid in a tomb, but that by the power of God, he'd be raised to life, never to be subject to death Again, if that is true, that indicates what our God is like. That indicates what our God is able to do. And faith rises. Again, it was Moses, wasn't it, who said to God in conversation, Lord, unless your presence goes with us, don't send us on from this place. But this is God saying to his people, I am with you. God's hand, God's favor was there was upon them and they they mixed all that they heard from Nehemiah with faith and so, say yes I, I believe God is about a new thing let's do this together sometimes new things that God does can come after years of silence and uh, again can speak into a, a situation where people of God feel small so when when God came, to, well, when an angel came to Mary and said, you're going to have a son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, again, the people of God were not big in the world. They were small. They were just a backwater province of, the, of, a, of another empire. Um, relatively insignificant and not particularly impressive. God comes to one person and says, in effect, I'm doing something new. And by the power of the Spirit, I'm going to conceive that into, into you. God's favor is upon you. Mary may not have felt like she was particularly favored before then, or even whilst the angel is explaining what's going to happen, but the favor of God. And then she gets told, look, uh, you're to name him Jesus or Emmanuel. Why? Because that means God is with us. Ah, oh. God is with us. Now, I believed that. I, I know that. I'm familiar with that. But, oh, to be reminded of it again, yes. Because maybe there's a sense in which my faith in that has just been a bit dusty, a bit faded. And God comes and says, I'm still at work. I'm still following through my vision, my purpose's for the human race. And at different times and in different ways, I step in to remind you I'm with you. And to reignite your faith again. So profound commitment. These people demonstrate a profound commitment, profound courage, profound confidence in God that enables them to, pro- to kind of embrace the cost that might be involved. Moving from one place into Jerusalem, setting aside their business for a time, really uh, costing them in terms of effort and energy and so on, it all comes from that place of believing uh, believing that God is big, but profound commitment, how does that sound to you? It can kind of sound sound exhausting. <sighs> it must have been hard work wasn 't it? All those gates, all those walls, a whole city to be rebuilt, all that rubble to clear, all those bricks to put back into place. Yes, and the doors and the bolts and the bars and them too. And uh, it can kind of sound like burnout territory. Like, this is the part that no one says during the intro course before people decide to become members of the church. Ah, they didn't mention that, did they? It's going to be hard work. It's going to be hard graft. There's going to be expectations and all the rest of it. And so what you've got to do is just protect yourself, make sure you don't get too involved. Otherwise, they'll start to expect more of you or whatever. There can be that kind of, just a kind of a, a, a wariness. What is the what is the cost in all of this? Sounds absolutely exhausting. Now, there are some things to be careful of uh, for a church. There's a danger of isolation. In other words, I'm believing that God has told me and has instructed me and has commissioned me to serve in this way. And I'm doing that. And uh, kind of, yeah, taking steps of faith for the call of God in my life and in our life together. Um, and then we can kind of almost come to a point where we think, and um, and actually, not only has God asked me to do this, but it has to be me. Um, there's no one else really around who can do that. And so, actually, whether I feel faith or not... Uh, I'm just gonna have to go for it. I'm gonna have to, I'm just gonna have to roll up my sleeves, um, and, uh, and set about it. And there's no other way. There's no one else who can do it. There's no one else who can help out. It's a great danger, um, even within a church of people getting isolated. And what we see here is that sense as we go through the chapter is of people really being shoulder to shoulder. Really, this is a community effort. This is people working together. And so again, you wonder how it worked out. Why did Merenoth, son of somebody, son of somebody else, kind of uh, go to a certain part of the wall? He repaired in one area. Maybe that was relatively straightforward. And he hears news of of help that's needed elsewhere. And so he he goes to the aid. There's that kind of support reinforcements that come um, where it's need it. Uh, some, yes, they're part of the, of the very big thing, but actually they're focused on a specific area. So we read later on in the chapter that some kind of give their attention to the area immediately beside their own house. And that's where they do the work. In other words, yes, I'm a part of this. Yes, I'm kind of giving myself to this. But actually there's room, there's scope for some people to have different levels of capacity. Some people have got a lot of availability. Some people have got more time and more effort. Um, If you're a student, that's basically you. Although I understand a lot of your courses will uh, will demand something of your time. If you're single, that's probably you too. You don't have children yet, that's probably you. Uh, There are those of us who might... Actually, at this stage in life, and it's not always the same, things change. But actually there is a sense of which, yeah, I've kind of got capacity. I can... Uh, I can put my hand to this, and others who'd be thinking, actually, this is the area that God has given me to serve in. Now, I need to make sure that I'm not just burning myself out, busying myself in doing the thing, rather than actually seeking to work as a team and not get isolated and, uh, and burnt out. But in all of this, the important thing is that we don't give in to another danger, that that danger of forgetting God. That danger of saying, I'm small, the vision is big. Ah! Because what we forget to do is say, I'm small, God is big. He has a big vision. And he's going to use us in a variety of different ways and different times to serve within his purposes. So we see profound commitment. We also see in the way that they set about these um, repairs, profound flexibility. These people are flexible. Uh, Let me explain. There's one word that dominates this passage because it's repeated 36 times or thereabouts. And it's the word repair or repaired. And um, that word carries the meaning or the sense of to make strong or firm. In other words, one commentator points out that it does not necessarily mean that they are restoring everything precisely as it was before. They are repairing the walls precisely as they had been. Um, In other words, they were free to do things under Nehemiah's leadership a little bit differently this time round. And in fact, the the, the passage suggests this. Some people would would look at the section from verse 20 onwards and say, well, where the, 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 the reference points become people's houses, that is indicative of the fact that they actually slightly moved where the wall was. And so on the, the southeastern edge of the city, the uh, excavations that took place in the 1960s seem to back this up. The location of the wall was actually moved. It was down a little way uh, into the gorge uh, and was a, and a bit wider. And Nehemiah realized that the wise thing to do was to bring it further up and to have the wall on top of a ridge. Why was that? Well, Probably because there's just absolutely tons and tons of rubble down there. But also, when a city was a little bit more vulnerable, fewer residents around, in order to uh, maintain and develop a strong city, they thought the, the, the wiser thing to do, let's just bring that area in a little bit and put it on higher ground. Uh, In other words, they weren't bound to do exactly what had been done before. They were free to look at the situation as it was right then and be flexible, not reproducing the past. So again, it's the same vision. God's always had this vision for the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah's got this city, this vision for the city being restored. Let's rebuild the wall. Yeah, It's the wall of Jerusalem, the same thing, the same vision, the same goal, but it's slightly different this time. It's being brought in. It's being changed a little bit. The the, the structure of the place will be very similar, but not precisely the same. The people um, had probably already encountered this uh, in the sense that before Nehemiah, Ezra had gone, also with this vision to restore the city, but primarily he came and he wanted to restore the temple. So the temple had been rebuilt. And in Ezra, just one book before Nehemiah, uh, and chapter 3, it says there um, that when uh, the foundation of the temple was laid, it says in, in verse 11, with praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But. Many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. So there's this great moment of celebration, yes, the foundation for this new temple has been laid, God's on the move, God's at work, the city, the temple is getting restored This is the answer to our prayers. Understandably, perhaps then. Some, however, who perhaps can remember the former glories of what had been before are saddened. They're saddened because they can see, yes, God is doing something new, but I kind of prefer it how it was. (laughs) That was the heyday. That was the kind of real glory time. I, I want... Yes, I kind of want things to be restored, but almost I want things to be restored by just going back to how exactly they were before. And so maybe by the time we get to Nehemiah and his efforts with the people to rebuild the wall, people have just got used to that. It's going to be the same, but it's going to be different. It's going to be the city. This is God doing a new thing, and this is good, but it won't be a precise copy of what's gone before. God, when he does a new thing, is free to do things a little bit differently. And that is a lesson for the church, really right through the ages, God's people right through the ages, to try and get hold of that when God does something new, it won't always be reproducing something that has gone before. So, again, when the people of God were small in number, God says to Noah, build an ark. What? Well, we've not, we've not done that before. That seems a bit bizarre. It's a new thing. God's still about the same thing, but he's doing something new. He's wanting to win to himself a people that will be a light to the whole world. So he speaks to Noah, build a boat. God does a new thing. So he sends Jesus, and there's this little boy in a manger. What? We could, the shepherds, the wise men, the others, could take offense. What? What's this? Now, we've had a king before. We had Saul, and he was really kind of broad-shouldered. And we had David, and he was like, yeah, he used a sling, which is a little bit unusual, but he saw massive victories. And we know what it is to have a king. We know what it is to have a ruler and a new leader. Baby, manger, God's doing a new thing. And he speaks to us and says, it's it's the same vision. God's same purpose is unfolding, but he does things in uh, a new way. Or there's another small group of believers who are gathering um, in an upper room. And then suddenly God does a new thing. And tongues of fire come and rest down uh, above their heads. And they start speaking in other languages, praising God. What? We've not seen that before. It doesn't, doesn't stack up with something we can quickly look. What, what's that? Reproducing precisely. No, it's a new thing. What's God doing? He's doing the same thing, but he's doing it new. He's doing it in a new way. And through church history... There'll be different times in different ways where different people, different uh, perhaps men, women, or guys who've led churches or movements or whatever, they've, they've discovered or they've rediscovered something or they've innovated. They've done something in a new way. William Booth organizes people, gives them uniforms, trumpets, calls them the Salvation Army and God uses them to see people saved. God's doing a new thing. Always the danger is We look back and we say that was the new thing and now we are staying with that. So anything else that comes along, unless it's reproducing the new, the once new thing that we now cherish, we can't, we can't go with it. We can't adopt it. Um, in other words, kind of traditions form where once what was new and innovative and fresh and God becomes old and rigid and dry, and crusty, and dusty, and just in need of freshening up. Jesus said that, didn't he, Um, about new wine needing a new wineskin. Because if new wine gets poured into an old wineskin, the wineskin bursts, the wine comes out, it's kind of ruins. New wine with a new wineskin. That's because Jesus came, and he came giving and being, as it were, new wine. He was new. He was different. He did not fit in with the expectations people had. And so for many at the time, they would have just taken offense at him. This doesn't stack up with what we we think should be happening. So we're rejecting you and your message and whatever healings you're performing and whoever you're forgiving. We just don't buy it. We don't get it because you're not the old wine. And Jesus goes and says, well, yeah, some people, after tasting the new wine, they still prefer the old. Um, Something that's kind of to our thinking at least, more more mature, more sophisticated, a proper vintage. Let's go with the tried and tested. And sometimes God says, honour all that's gone before, honour everything I've done, but when I come and do a new thing, be ready to receive it with a new wineskin. Be ready to kind of be, be flexible enough to go. It's going to be the same vision. It's my same purposes, but I don't have to do things exactly the way that you would like me to, says the Lord. And uh, so that's why we need to be ready to be flexible. Obviously, it's important that we don't just uncritically jump on any old bandwagon that rolls into town. This is the new way to do things. This is the new successful model for church life. And so this is how we're going to do things now. And it's like, yeah church by painting numbers, as it were. It's not a mechanical process. Uh, We're called to real discipleship following Jesus, not kind of just textbook, copybook-style spirituality. Um, So we don't jump on every bandwagon, um, but there are times to go with what God is doing, and it's a new thing. So we see a a people, if you can still remember the fact that we've been looking at Nehemiah chapter 3, a people who are profoundly committed. There's a sense of flexibility among them as well. And also, and lastly for now, there are people who are profoundly united. The fact that the wall was rebuilt shows that people weren't just committed and enthusiastic, but they were also united and together. Together. In amongst enthusiasm and zeal and faith, there can still come friction and edginess and divisions. So you can think in some ways the church in Corinth was a community of faith. But right at the outset of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians he's saying, where have these divisions sprung up? Some says I follow this guy, some says I follow Apollos, some... Cephas and some Christ. Why have you allowed these kind of divisions to come in? Well, there's whenever people are involved in anything, there's always a recipe for, for that to happen, for things to kind of fragment a little bit, for people to kind of, yeah, they're shoulder to shoulder, but maybe they're just rubbing up against each other the wrong way. And relationships need to be guarded and so on. Again, it's an it's an evidence of the hand of God upon this people. Not only that they're enthusiastic, uh, not only that they're flexible, but they're united. Remember, there's a, a huge variety of people involved in this activity. So you've got, like I said before, priests and perfume makers. Well, interestingly, neither of those are builders. Um, but they're, they're coming to this project. Priests and perfume makers, rulers and residents... Ordinary guys uh, and the goldsmiths it 's always good to have some goldsmiths as well as ordinary guys around um, a great variety of people, so now no doubt there were some differences between them, no doubt there were some different accents, no doubt there were some uh, different personalities, but what united them is their faith in the same the same God, so what they reckon on is What unites us is far greater than our differences. And in Christ, that is even more profoundly true. Um, That in Christ, people can be united together from any backgrounds, from any story, from any place, uh, any accents, any ethnic groups. United uh, in Christ. That's what he's come to do. One new group one community very diverse there's a lot of variety in this people uh, but they belong together and they're working together there's only one sad note in the whole of this chapter and really i suppose it can come under this banner of of unity we're seeing profound unity there's just one negative uh, note that comes in uh, in verse five we're introduced to the men of Tekoa. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. They're one of the groups that are really hardy and uh, greater capacity. I don't know what. So they work on this part of the wall. And then a few verses later, they go down the other side of the city and they work on another part of the wall there. But it says there, we're told, their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. What was going on? The literal translation is they weren't putting their neck to it. Um, that idea perhaps where doing hard manual labor would have, in, would have involved carrying something, a yoke across the neck to shift this rubble. Now, the, the nobles of Tokoa no, we're not, we're not doing that. We, we can't do that. They wouldn't put their shoulders or actually their necks to the work under their supervisors. It's a slightly... Vague phrase. It could mean, actually, they weren't willing to put their shoulder to the work under Nehemiah. They could take issue with Nehemiah and say, you're of no great spiritual caliber um, amongst Jewish people. Uh, You've got no priestly blood in you. um, And you've been serving a foreign king. So we're not going to put our shoulder under you. It could be they weren't putting their shoulder under other supervisors it could have been there was a sort of sense of of just laziness or maybe some might think they were actually very worried what's going to happen to home what's going to happen to tokoa if we leave it to come to jerusalem and put our shoulder to the work who knows but one way or another pride is getting into them And is the great enemy of unity. God is doing something new. Maybe even they could articulate that. Maybe even they would agree. Yes, God is doing something new. But they're too much focused on, what's our position in the pecking order here? God's doing something new. So maybe there are people who are supervising the work who have kind of almost come out of nowhere. He makes perfume. He can't build to save his life. What's he doing trying to tell me to, to, that's the next task? But, but God kind of raises people up in different ways at different times and, uh, to do different things. But they're thinking there's a, there's a chain of command and there's a big hierarchy and we want to make sure that we're near the top of it. That way we'll know that we're important. I think it's probably a, a flavour of that. So they did not bring their necks in service. They wouldn't they wouldn't put themselves underneath um, others' leadership, two concerns threatened, I suppose, um, with what their place was in the pecking order. And somehow that is something that can affect church life. If there's a preoccupation with what's the chain of command around here, who's in what, what position? Do I have to listen to them? or not can i all of that can kind of come into it because obviously in in the world in work in many different spheres we are used to the the hierarchy um a, a kind of a system of line management i report to so and so and he or she reports to this person and, and eventually it's up to there uh, that kind of person's not really accessible um so now can i relate to this person here who leads the coffee team uh i'm not sure i can uh, I can't imagine that's the case. I pick on a rather superficial example. Um, But that kind of sense of God's doing something new. But I can't. I'm not going to go with it. Um, Like I say, it's just the the small negative point in this whole chapter. Because I believe as we're looking at this chapter, like I said at the outset, we're looking at a miracle. We're looking at Nehemiah simply opens up his heart to the people and all the people go yes and amen we're in this the city has been desolate the wall has been down for a hundred years or more but we see now is the time and yes we're going to put our next to it there's going to be some hard work involved but primarily the foundation of this whole thing is we're believing the God of heaven. We're believing the God of heaven is with us. We're believing the God of heaven is doing something new. We believe the God of heaven is wanting to achieve that which has always been his heart. To have a people who are his and to draw more and more people into his community. That there might be more and more people seeing and knowing and experiencing for themselves what his wonderful love is like. What it means to belong to him, so yeah. There's work. There's a need to be flexible. There's a great encouragement here to be united. Why? Because God's doing something. Some have said that the church is God's plan A for the world, and that there's no plan B. Uh, sometimes that sounds like a duff idea. So. Uh, Sepp Blatter, apparently saying this week, uh, head of FIFA, saying, uh, you know, a crane fell down in a Brazilian football stadium, but there is no plan B. That stadium will host the opening match of the tournament. That, that's what it's got to be. There's no plan B. He was saying, well, it looks a bit of a vulnerable situation, doesn't it? Um, apparently, Will Smith, that great philosopher of our age, has also said, there's no reason to have a plan B because it distracts from plan A. <laughs> And God's saying, I'm big and I've got plan A, and my plan A is to so come upon and empower a group of people that belong to me and are saved by me that they're they're the light of the world. They're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And through them I'm going to reveal my light, my love, my grace my forgiveness, my ability to restore, my ability to take something that has crumbled or even someone's life that has crumbled and actually restore it. And I want to show that's who I am. That's what I'm like. And I'm, I've purposed to do that through the church. There's a plan A. There's no plan B. But because the God of heaven is involved and he's bringing us about, that's a very good place for us to be in. Let's pray together.